Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the post-election edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, it was quite a night last night here in Georgia elections. But, you know, yesterday morning when we went on the air, I, I made the statement that yesterday, last night, Georgia would be the focus of the nation's attention as results came in. And uh, sadly, uh, because of the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, at Robb Elementary School, all eyes turned there, uh, where once again um, a horrific mass shooting has taken the lives of uh, so many young people, a teacher. Um, and, and all of that had an impact last night, I think, on how people watched the election returns come in, and they were at their election parties, the way candidates uh, had to deal with at least mentioning that and um, how it may impact campaigns moving forward. And, and so we're going to talk about both things on the show today. We're certainly going to talk about what our great panel today saw happening in, as the results of the elections came in, what they mean. And, uh, and then we'll also talk about gun violence and how it may now play an even larger role moving forward in the 2022 election cycle. So we'll do all that and more with the panel. I have to say that um, uh, I am really grateful to Greg Bluestein, first of all, because Greg, I know you were up all night, literally, uh, uh, watching and reporting on uh, the uh, races, and you've already been up doing talk shows since early this morning. So Greg Bluestein, AJC political reporter and the author of Flipped. Thanks for being here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. And uh, you're right, though. It, the, the shootings really did cost. Uh, it, it made it a lot harder for us to sit there and try to you know, tweet about silly things in politics when, when such a tragedy, unspeakable tragedy happened in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, your colleague, Tia Mitchell, Washington reporter, uh, for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is also with us. Tia, you've uh, been working uh, most of the night, and as a result, you're a little under the weather, and you're trying to keep your voice going, but thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, and yes, please bear with me. I don't. It's between the weather and just running, running, running to cover these primaries, I'm worn down. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us. And two great professors from Emory University uh, join us uh, today. Uh, professor Andre Gillespie, political science professor and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. I know you were up uh, late last night. Uh, uh, Channel 11 is your home on election nights to give your analysis. So I'm glad you could come do the show this morning, Andra. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, and uh, your colleague, uh, Alan Abramowitz, now an emeritus uh, professor at Emory. Um, Alan, I never knew quite what the term emeritus professor meant until you told me. That means essentially that you're kind of retired, but you're not really, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd like to think that it, it means something like meritorious, but uh, actually just, just pretty much means that 
you're retired and they agree to give you this title. So you sound more important. Well, he also gets out you of are always that I can't get out of anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you are always important on our show, uh, uh, Professor Abramowitz. All right, let's get right to first the uh, results from uh, Georgia elections. Um, Greg Bluestein, people like to call this show or, or send me notes saying, why do you keep talking about the polls? The polls are usually wrong more and more these days. And this morning, I have to acknowledge one thing. It is absolutely true that the polls on Brian Kemp and David Perdue were wrong. They predicted that Kemp would win by maybe 30 points. Uh, he won by over 50 points. It was a total shellacking, Greg. Yeah, you know, when the AJC had its uh, first poll of this race, um, it showed Kemp in the low 50s and, and Purdue in the low 30s, or the high 30s, I should say. And I called our pollster. I was like, hey, either we're right on track or – uh, because it, that was that was one of the first polls that showed Kemp well above the 50% mark. And our pollster um, said, from UGA, um, Trey Hood, he said, we could be on the verge of an epic collapse. We could ju- this could be just the first poll that shows an inkling of what's about to happen at David Perdue. And he was right. I mean, we saw uh, a collapse seems like an understatement. We just saw a complete evisceration, uh, dismantling, a humiliation. All those words um, don't even describe what we saw from – and this wasn't some, you know, no-name Republican running against an entrenched incumbent. This was the former U.S. senator with his own name brand, with his own – you know, I would go to Republican events for years where there would be selfie lines out the door. I mean, the guy who was a rock star in Republican politics, and now he's a, he's a laughingstock, right? So, um, yes, the polls were a little bit off the other way. And, we, look, we saw the same thing in 2018, the Stacey Abrams versus Stacey Evans. Polls showed a, Stacey Abrams with a, a big lead, but at the end it became a, a demolition. Yeah. Um, Andra, we, we should say that um, David Perdue, despite the fact that he did run a campaign uh, based on grievance and anger, uh, we, we should say that last night he was gracious. He, number one, conceded very early. I think it was about 830. And he immediately called Brian Kemp and then publicly said, of course, he would go. He would do everything he could to make sure that Brian Kemp is elected governor in the fall, which is probably not something that his patron, Donald Trump, was glad to hear him say, Andra. Well, you know what, but it's the truth. And this is um, evidence of the old David Perdue that I think we knew from 2014 when he first came on the political scene. Um, I also think that the margins here are really telling. Like he may have behaved a little bit differently had this been a closer race. But when you lose by 50 points, you really can't say that people cheated, nor can you go out and try to declare victory before it's actually been certified in the way that President Trump has tried to encourage Dr. Oz to do in, in Pennsylvania. So, I mean, he did what he the only thing that he could do. And if you're going to have to do that, then you might as well do it with class and behave like an adult. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think he had any choice. I mean, given that one sided the election was, I mean, we could see this coming for quite a while. Um, It was pretty clear from the fact that David Perdue had essentially um, stopped advertising Um, over the last couple of weeks. He uh, wasn't raising any money. Um, it, it was really a pretty pathetic uh, campaign. Uh, and I think that just reflected the fact that uh, Purdue really gave Republican voters in the state no reason to throw out the incumbent other than the stolen election. I mean, his whole campaign was based on the stolen election. And what we've seen 
is, uh, in a number of races around the country and now here in Georgia is that that is a not of enough reason to convince Republican voters to throw out uh, candidates and elected officials that they uh, otherwise uh, like and who otherwise are uh, producing results that, that they like. And, and Ian Kemp, you know, is, is pretty popular with rank-and-file Republicans. He's given them a, a, a lot of things that they want. Um, he's appealed very strongly to the Republican base uh, in, the, in, his, in the way he's governed and in the way he campaigned. And, and so it's not surprising that we saw the results that we did last night. Tia? I just, I remain fascinated and <clears throat> about David Perdue, just like I was after the runoff. Because remember in 2021, he lost steam. He got embarrassed by John Ossoff, and he looked like he just gave up, right? And then he gets drawn back in to run against Kemp this time. And I know he was promised a lot of things, which I would be fascinated if one day he, he tells the truth about what he was promised and whether it was delivered. But it seems like, once again, his heart really wasn't in it. And he gave up at the end. And he went out with such a whimper. And even like, not that I expected him to not be graceful and conceding, but he had even no fire, no, his concession didn't look anything like his campaign. It was like two different people. So it just Mm. leaves me just so curious about why he signed up to do this, what he thought he would get out of it. Because remember, this guy is filthy rich. He lives on his Mm. own private island. He doesn't need Mm. this. So why, if your heart's not really in it, and it again, because the way he ended the race is so incongruous with the way things started out and so much of his rhetoric, I just am like, well, what was the reason? Uh, Greg, I couldn't help but uh, think about uh, a section in your book, Flipped, in which you talk about David Perdue. And I want to ask you about it and throw it out to the panel. Um, I can't help but wonder if in some ways the Purdue 2014 victory was an outlier um, because he lost his subsequent two uh, races. I mean, in 2014, I think Georgia was still fairly red. We, Democrats had not figured out a way to win statewide races, so it wasn't surprising Purdue won that race. But, but then he cannot win his reelection bid for the U.S. Senate. Um, and I wonder if he's ever really been considered one of them, a real Georgian. And you said this about him in your book, if you don't mind read my reading something. You said, Purdue always found it funny he was granted lofty status as a rock star in the Republican Party, that fawning conservatives waited in line for a selfie or a signature at GOP events. It wasn't so long ago the Republican base regarded the globetrotting former executive with mistrust even disdain. And, and I just wonder, there's this, an ambivalent sort of attitude about him, it seems to me, that may have had something to do with this, uh, this shellacking he took. You know, in 2014, when he ran, he, he, even though he had this famous last name, he was an outcast, right? He was running against all these incumbent Congress members who were running for Senate, and Karen Handel, who was a former statewide official. Uh, and David Perdue was here as this this kind of like, I mean, there was this one event that always stuck in David Perdue's mind about um, he was at a barbecue and Nathan Deal, the governor, walked right by him. He wasn't trying to snub him, just had no clue who he was. Um, he'd go to these um, Republican gatherings and, and the only people who, 
who had stickers on for him were the people paid to do so, right? And he emerged from that, um, you know, working outside the system um, to, to win office. And, you know, he would go to these Republican gatherings and just say, you know what, I don't want to, I'd rather stage my own events. You know, because the Republican gatherings that were full of activists who were already against him. They like Jack Kingston, one of his other rivals. Um, but he won that 2014 race by being disciplined, by staying on message. Um, he made gaffes, of course, but he, his main message was that Democrat Michelle Nunn was a rubber stamp for Barack Obama. In this race, um, we were just talking about how much his campaign imploded. Monday was the worst I've ever seen David Perdue. That was at the Wild Wing Cafe, literally right down the street from where I live in Dunwoody. Uh, I pass by it almost every day. Um, uh, he had a, a gathering of fringe Republican figures with a far-right radio host who kept on insisting that David Perdue was making a comeback. He sparred with reporters. He um, said the polls were full of crap. He suggested he wouldn't accept the results of the election, and he made a racist insult about Stacey Abrams. Uh, all of this, you know, all of this, even, even David Perdue's critics, had, you know, his fiercest critics, it's a side of him they had not really ever seen. And that is, you know, he was trying to show he was feisty, but it shows how far he had fallen from that 2014 race where he was on message, he was disciplined, and he was, at that time, a rising star of the Republican Party until, until the Trump dynamic changed everything. Um, Alan, all of us who are observers of uh, Georgia politics have been speculating about what was going to happen to the party when you had a Brian Kemp win the Republican nomination for mm-hmm. governor, but you had pro-Trumpers uh, win other races. It looks like uh, 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 we could have a number of Trumpers on the on the Republican ticket uh, for the fall. Did it, and, and there's that tension between the pro-Trumpers and those who try to— uh, Stay out of Trump's firing uh, line. But um, did Purdue ease that a little bit by uh, making such an unequivocal uh, endorsement of of Kemp last night? Well, I think what we have to really keep in mind here is that uh, despite the fact that um, Trump's uh, candidates did not do well last night, at least the ones at the top of the ticket certainly did not do well, that... uh, this is a very Trumpy party. Um, that 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 Donald Trump has had a big impact on the Republican Party across the country and in Georgia, regardless of whether his endorsed candidates are successful. Even the candidates who he opposed, uh, in many ways, were mimicking uh, Trump's style and Trump's positions right. on the issues. Look at what happened in the race for Secretary of State, where Brad Raffensperger. Uh, won without a runoff, which was a bit of a surprise, I think, to 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 me at least, to to a, to a lot of people. Um, and but one of the ways he did that, he, there were two things that helped him. One, he got a lot of Democrats to cross over and vote for him. Um, uh, but second, despite even as he was doing that, uh, he was campaigning uh, to some extent on the same sorts of uh, issues that Donald Trump has campaigned on, that Trump supporters have campaigned on, that is uh, talking about the need for greater election integrity, uh, bragging about the fact that he had taken action to prevent, you know, uh, uh, illegal immigrants from voting in Georgia, something that hasn't happened. Uh, So uh, Raffensperger, along with the other Republicans, Brian Kemp, certainly in his campaign, was pitching his message very strongly to the Trump base. Uh, and so we're seeing that across the country. 
Trump may not succeed uh, in getting his endorsed candidates nominated, but his impact on the party uh, is still very noticeable and will continue in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with Alan. Um, so Trumpism is, is, is with us for the near future. Um, you know, I don't know yet if people are willing to say the quiet part out loud, which is what people have known for a long period of time, um, that uh, Donald Trump jumps on bandwagons and then claims he built them, um, or he's jumping on bandwagons <laughs> mid-parade. Um you know, last night was one of those evidences of it. I mean, you know, we see his weekend endorsements where he's endorsing people who are running unopposed um, and mm-hmm. who don't have serious, you know, aren't in competitive districts, so they're going to win their congressional seats, right? I mean, you guys have to call that what it is. This is, you know, about his ego trip, or he's basically making random endorsements, um, sometimes based on emotion and not based on logic. Um, and so, you know, that may be wearing thin, but... Uh, what Trump was actually really good at doing as a marketer is reading his audience. And so that should give us all pause that he was able to tap into this deep, dark underbelly of resentment that's rooted in racism and sexism and all kinds of um, isms and tap into it and effectively be able to kind of control a party for five years. Right. That's something we all need to, to kind of be mindful of so that we check those underlying things so that somebody like him who's going to be a grifter doesn't actually get to really get a foothold in the party. Um, that said, we still need to look at the entire, uh, you know, swath of primary races um, across the country and across time to really get the full impact of uh, sense of the impact of, of, of Trump's candidate, of Trump's endorsements. But, you know, in general, right, I think we shouldn't take them seriously, right, because it's not the only thing that a person needs in order to win an election. Yeah, clearly. Um, uh, Tia, uh, I think in a way Alan Abramowitz sort of understated uh, the Brad Raffensperger victory. I think that was the story of the night in many ways, wasn't it? I mean, Brian Kemp, we we expected he was going to win, given the polling in that race and the way that the Purdue com- uh, campaign had collapsed. But there were many people who thought that there would at least be a runoff between Raffensperger and the Trump-anointed Jody Heiss, who has ran his whole campaign on the big lie. And yet, Raffensperger wins outright. Yeah, and I can't wait, you know, for people like my colleagues, Mark Nisi and all the folks that are going to dig into the data you know, after the the books close on the primary, because it does look like Democratic or voters who wouldn't normally pull a Republican ballot hedge their bets, knowing that in a state like Georgia, there's a chance that whoever wins the Republican primary becomes a secretary of state. And so concerned about having an election denier in that role, I wonder what was the impact of those crossover voters backing Raffensperger. Um, But Definitely, it was the upset of the night. I was one of those people who assumed it would go to a runoff. Um, But I think it showed, again, this was, it's probably the biggest defeat for Trump because even more so than Kemp, Raffensperger was a Trump critic. You know, he was out front vocal saying what this guy is saying is wrong, what he's doing is wrong, people are being harmed. Those are things, you know, Kemp, Kemp stood firm. But he didn't have these grand speeches criticizing former President Trump in the same way that Raffensperger did. So this is going to hurt Trump more. 
Yeah, you know, gee, I put I put them like a one and one A. The only reason I'd, I'd say that it, it, you know that they're kind of tied is because of the extraordinary effort that Donald Trump has put into defeating Brian Kemp. I mean, this wasn't a situation where he just sent out a press release and said, "I support David Perdue." I mean, that he he shifted three million dollars plus. Uh, more than any other candidate, financial resources more than any other candidate he's helped towards David Perdue's campaign. He he literally tried to clear the field uh, for David Perdue by orchestrating Vernon Jones running for Congress in a in a district where he doesn't live. Um, he mm-hmm. taped ads for him. He came down here and did an in-person rally primarily for David Perdue. But yeah, Brad Raffensperger is the story of the night, uh, the political story of, of the night for Georgia at least, um, because I'm like many people. I I wrote him off. I thought he wouldn't even qualify. And here he is um, with a 50-plus victory, and it completely changes the nature of November in in Georgia um, because, and, and certainly the, the runoff, but, but but by extension the November race because no longer is it you know, a race about whether or not the state's next elected official overseeing elections would just be a, a Trump lackey, right? Um, now you don't have that because you have a Republican who literally stood up to Donald Trump. And a Democrat who's going to have to shift their message, if it's B. Nguyen or, or D. Doc and Tegeler, um in the runoff, a Democrat is going to have to shift their message um, you know, and try to push back a, a, a Republican who enough Democrats voted for. Just like you said, we don't know the numbers exactly, but we do have predictions um, and we do have enough analysis to show that in early voting, about 10 percent, 8 to 10 percent of the Republican primary electorate were Democratic voters. And 40,000 or so of those early voters um, are people by the Abrams campaign predicted, projected would have voted and will vote for Democrats in November. So a significant number of Democrats, tens of thousands, voted in these elections. And we can only assume that many of them voted for Brad Raffensperger. Yeah. And and we really don't know how many of them will come back to the Democratic side uh, in the general election. I mean, that remains to be seen. And and much of that will depend on who the Democrats finally end up nominating after a runoff and how that candidate uh, uh, addresses uh, the fact that Raffensperger, while he he turned down Trump, he has, as has already been said on the show, certainly uh, talked about election integrity in Trump-like terms in many ways. Um, Alan, before we get away from the Trump Trump scenario in the Georgia election entirely, let's at least point out that when you look at down-ballot races, Trump also took a couple of losses that matter in terms of how you view his endorsements. Um, he, uh, he had a, a pretty obscure candidate running against uh, Chris Carr, the attorney general. Carr mm-hmm. won that race handily, and Carr, of course, also a very close uh, ally of Brian Kemp and John King, insurance commissioner. Once again, Trump tried to get a candidate in there and say that we needed to replace John King. Both of them won pretty handily and in, in races that the public isn't paying a great deal of attention to. But nevertheless, they were defeats for Trump. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think once again, what we see here is that um, Republican voters... Uh, are not necessarily going to vote for a candidate just because that candidate is endorsed by Donald Trump. Um, If they otherwise have a favorable view of a candidate um, or if the Trump-endorsed candidate doesn't run a strong campaign or doesn't give them a solid reason for voting for them beyond the fact that that candidate is endorsed by Trump, 
or the big lie, I think you're going to see those candidates. Uh, not, many of them are not going to do very well. And we've seen that before in, in other states. We saw that uh, last night in Georgia. Um, I think we'll continue to see that uh, going forward. Um, the question is, you know, what, what does this tell us about uh, the outlook for 2024? Um, and if, if Trump decides to run, uh, is this going to embolden other Republicans to run against him, uh, challenge him on the ground that, that look, we can uh, offer you uh, the same sorts of policies that you like, meaning Republican primary voters, um, but without the baggage that Trump would bring uh, to another presidential uh, campaign. Uh, we're conservatives. Um, we support these policies, um, but we're looking forward and not backward, um, and we're going to be uh, give you a much better chance of success. I think that a lot, a lot of what Republican primary voters were looking at uh, yesterday in, or in, in the election in Georgia in the primary was, in a, you know, also, who do we think gives us the best chance at winning the general election? Um, and I think they decided that in many of these races – that it was, the, well, certainly the incumbents for governor, secretary of state, attorney general, who give, give them the best chance of, uh, of, of winning the election in November. Andrew? You know, you know that may be part of, of, of what's going on here. Um, you know, but what I, I think we also need to keep in mind is that, you know, it, it, takes, it takes more than an endorsement to win an election. Um, and I think some of these people just thought that as long as they said that they were Trump-backed, that that would be enough. Um, or if you show a picture of President Trump and you don't have anything else to say, that that's going to be sufficient. It might be fine if you're Herschel Walker and you have a Heisman Trophy. Um, but like most other people didn't have those other luxuries. And so the fundamentals still matter in this race. So an endorsement is one tool of many. It helps to convey information for candidates who weren't particularly well known. But if, you know, you're not up on TV, if you don't have people knocking on doors and making phone calls uh, from you, if you don't have policy positions, like sooner or later, that's going to catch up to you. And so I think from the top of the ticket on down, we saw sort of places where people kind of, you know, thought that they could roll that die and it just didn't work out for them. And I think that that's a, that's a lesson for political science and for like, you know, traditional kind of, you know, political consulting that and any of us could have told you that, that this was, this was going to happen. <laughs> Tia. Yeah. And I would say now that we know that Trump's endorsement is not the end all be all, but it does help particularly when there's no incumbent in the race. Now the races to watch are these congressional runoffs. We have three. One of them features Trump's endorsed Vernon Jones, but he's got a lot of weaknesses in that district, you know, where he's a former Democrat who didn't have any ties to the area. So can Trump put him over the edge in a runoff? Will Trump come to the district and campaign for Vernon Jones? You know, it's a little bit different dynamic in the 6th district, but you've got Jake Evans with the Trump endorsement over Rich McCormick. But in the 2nd district, which is the main target for Republicans, Trump did not endorse. So does he endorse now? It's down to Chris West and Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy Hunt, again, is the one who kind of came from the outside and is not seen as the one with deep ties to the district. 
but he has the money and has the endorsement. So does Trump make a decision? These are where, you know, we've noted that in a lot of the congressional races, he endorsed people who were going to win anyways. So he can't really take credit for that. But in that second district runoff, will Trump endorse and will he campaign for a candidate? And could it make a difference in an open primary like that? Well, you know, uh, in a primary without just, a Republican incumbent. Sorry, let, let's just remind uh, listeners that when you talk about the second, you're talking about Republican candidates who are now in a runoff to face Sanford Bishop, who's held that seat for, what, three decades, uh, but could be vulnerable based on the fact that the district was redrawn by the Republican legislature in this past session. Uh, Let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show and come back. I'd like to look at the other side of the ledger at Democrats for a while, and we'll do that with this panel. And then we're going to talk about the role of guns as an election issue after the tragic massacre we saw unfold yesterday. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Quick couple of reminders. Uh, Wednesday is our Political Rewind newsletter uh, day. You can get it in your your email. Uh, Just uh, uh, go to gpb.org slash newsletters to sign up. Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmes-Dawes, Sarah Callis, and I are all working to put together a last-minute special election edition that we'll get out uh, later this afternoon. So a sign up. Second, um, we're not going to rerun this show at two o'clock. We're going to be live with a panel at two because we want to make sure we are really up to speed on everything that's happening with election returns that are in some places still being counted. Um, Greg Bluestein, Andre Gillespie, uh, Alan Abramowitz, Tia Mitchell joined me on the show today. Greg, let's turn to the Democratic uh, side for a while now. Um, Stacey Abrams, we knew who was going to win. She was unopposed in uh, the race for governor, obviously. Um, and uh, I want to play, because we've you know focused so much on the Republican contest, which have been where all the action is, I, I do want to play one soundbite um, we'll, in which we'll hear Stacey Abrams tell reporters about the strategy she intends to employ Uh, as the general election campaign gets underway. Uh, Let's listen to it, and then, Greg, you start us off on responding. We've already built one of the most impressive apparatuses for voter engagement, and we're going to continue to expand. This is going to be an expensive race, but our investment is not going to be in tit-for-tat politics. It's going to be in making sure that every Georgia voter knows how to vote, knows why to vote, and knows where to vote. And we're going to give them a reason to vote. That's the mission of this campaign. Uh, so, Greg, there's Stacey Abrams. Uh, by the way, the Republican Governors Association, which put $5 million into Brian Kemp's primary campaign, has already today launched an attack ad on Stacey Abrams. It's on TV in certainly the Atlanta market, maybe across the state as well. Greg? Yes, it's a six-figure ad. You can find all the details in the morning, Joel, from AJC. But it's a six-figure um, ad by, and it's mostly Metro Atlanta broadcast. But it shows you that, hey, the RGA already spent five mil 
on on Kemp, and they're not about to slow down their spending, and they're giving us valuable air cover right now as he prepares for the general election. But look, that that one, what you just heard Stacey Abrams say was a response to a question about whether or not um, she can rebuild the the same multiracial coalition that helped Democrats win in 2020, and that helped her narrowly get there in 2018. 55,000 or so votes away from, from defeating Brian Kemp back then. Uh, and that's a big question because she acknowledges, and so do, to, so do every other Democrat on the ballot, that there are tremendous headwinds. There's Joe Biden's sagging approval ratings. There's concerns about economic uncertainty, higher energy prices, rising inflation, all those issues. So how can Democrats um, you know, counter those messages and unify behind, um, behind a singular uh, campaign message? And, you know, she is making it Medicaid expansion. Um, she is going to be criticizing, uh, we'll talk about this later, but uh, gun, uh, gun restriction rollbacks and talking about economic equality and other, other ways that Georgia, in her view, is falling behind. And we're going to hear a lot more about that from Stacey Abrams as this campaign continues. Andra? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, that's exactly what she should do. And I don't, I'm not surprised in the least that she would say, basically, I'm going to adopt a mobilization strategy to try to find every Democratic voter in the state. In a state where, you know, the balance between Democratic and Republican voters in, in you know, numerically is as narrow as it is, that's the only way that you win elections. And so she's also honing in on issues that she's hoping will excite the base and give Democrats a reason to want to show up for her. And we know from work that's been done, especially with on issues of race, that anger can be used to animate white voters to get them to turn out to vote. What Democrats are banking on this time, and so the empirics are going to have to catch up, like in order to know whether or not this is true, is that abortion rights can be that type of thing that's going to anger Democrats enough to actually get them to increase their voter turnout as well. So, I mean, I hear the exact same turnout strategy that Stacey Abrams has been putting into practice for a decade in order to grow the Democratic base of the state. And what she's hoping is that her continued effort over the last four years is going to actually end up working to her benefit in this gubernatorial race. Alan? Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. Um, it's, it's going to be primarily a base mobilization uh, strategy on both sides. Um, Republican voters, we know, are, are already energized. Democrats are hoping that the presence of Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock at the top of the ticket, uh, along with issues like abortion, um, and the, especially after the Supreme Court makes its decision, will uh, also energize the Democratic base. I think we're looking at the likelihood of a very you know, closely contested election uh, again. However, I would say that um, Brian Kemp definitely has some advantages in this race that he did not have four years ago. Um, number one, it's an election with a Democratic president in the White House rather than an election with a Republican president in the White House, a relatively unpopular Democratic president, whereas four years ago we had a relatively unpopular Republican president in the White House. Secondly, as the incumbent, Kemp has shown that he is uh, capable or able and willing to use the powers of his office uh, to try to enhance his appeal to voters. Uh, he is benefiting from the fact that Georgia has a very strong economy right now. Uh, jobs are growing. The state budget is flush. Um, there's a surplus. He can do things that are popular, like giving raises to teachers, like cutting taxes, like eliminating the gasoline tax for a period of time uh, without much risk because the economy is strong. Why is the economy strong here in Georgia? Mainly because the national economy is strong. Uh, however, uh, Democrats and Joe Biden are getting blamed for 
inflation um, and supply chain issues, whereas governors like Brian Kemp don't have to worry about that. They're not going to be blamed for inflation, but they get the benefit of governing at a time when their economy is growing and they can uh, uh, they don't have to do things that are unpopular like raise taxes. They can do a lot of things that are popular. I think Brian Kemp has the edge going into the general election, but I expect it to be another uh, you know very uh, competitive uh, and relatively high turnout uh, uh, for a midterm election. Uh, Tia, also what's interesting is that Brian Kemp, of course, was able to take advantage of uh, millions and millions of dollars that were poured into the state, uh, which he could redistribute as if it was the money that he was uh, giving out to uh, to teachers, to law enforcement, to others. Uh, when, in fact, of course, it was Democrats in Congress who were able to pass the, uh, the COVID relief funds that uh, he's uh, been able to take uh, credit for. And, and in the same way, his campaign is attacking Stacey Abrams uh, because of her, her her saying that Kemp opened the state during COVID too quickly. Their response was, look at our economy, it's booming, but the Georgia economy, economy is booming, as Alan points out, in, in large extent, to a large extent, because the national of the national economy. These are all really interesting factors in how this race will unfold. Right. And, you know, as others on the panel have mentioned, Brian Kemp is going to be able to take advantage of narratives that make him look good, but don't always give the full picture. So not just with all the money that came from the federal government that boosted the state's budget and allowed him to do things like cut taxes and and give uh, teachers and law enforcement pay raises. But you look on the issue of like even the way he's now being able to position himself as a Trump opponent and, you know, not necessarily a moderate, but someone who's not so far right, they won't stand up for, they won't, you know, temper themselves. And there's a, there's pebbles of truth in that, but also he's very, very conservative in ways that I think are a little bit masked because the narrative has focused so much on Donald Trump opposing him. So, that's been able, we'll see if Stacey Abrams is able to shift that narrative to focus on some of the things that Governor Kemp has championed that may not, you know, may be able to bring him down a notch, such as, you know, supporting the heartbeat anti-abortion bill, supporting open carry, especially in light of, you know, these recent mass shootings, opposing Medicaid expansion, Um we know that's what Stacey Abrams is going to do, but it's going to be hard to get voters' minds to shift from thinking, hey, this guy isn't so bad. He stood up to Donald Trump. And I think that goes a lot of way in appealing to voters, particularly at the center, that we know are going to be so crucial in a general election. Greg, uh, let's talk about the other big race that we're going to start seeing unfold right now, and that's the campaign between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, who won his race, as people predicted, by over with over 60 percent of the vote. What, what, what are your thoughts about the way that race stands at the very start? Well, now we're in an entirely new phase, and one that we've expected throughout, because Herschel Walker ran as the frontrunner from the very get-go, focusing entirely on Raphael Warnock and ignoring his Republican rivals. Um, but right now, I mean, we saw the campaign memo from Senator Warnock's um, campaign 
last night that pretty much made it very clear that they're going to try to um, highlight the differences, uh, not just in their policies, but also in their pasts. So there will be a, a Democrats, expect Democrats to talk about and bring up his history of erratic behavior, violent behavior towards women, um, you know, embellishing his business acumen, uh, lying about his academic experience, all those issues. And then expect Herschel Walker to try to not make this race about him. You know, he has this, uh, he's the only candidate who didn't need Donald Trump's endorsement whatsoever. Like he would have, he would have won in a, in a walk um, regardless, in my view, um, of what he did. Uh, all these Republicans kept on thinking he'd collapse somehow, but they were underestimating just the strength of the, of the celebrity appeal of Herschel Walker. I mean, I've been to campaign events where I've seen Gary Black supporters wearing Gary Black t-shirts stand in a 30-minute line just to get a picture with their boss's <laughs> rival. I mean, it's been insane. Um, so, uh, but, but he doesn't want to make this race about him and his past. He wants to make it about a referendum on Joe Biden. And right now, that looks like a, it's a pretty smart move because Joe Biden's approval ratings are so, so low in Georgia and throughout the nation. So already, I mean, I was with Herschel Walker yesterday. What did he call Raphael Warnock? Little Biden. You know, you're going to hear a lot more about that. That strategy might shift and you might hear, you know, going back to radical liberal. But right now, Republican strategy is not saying radical liberal 47 million times about Raphael Warnock and saying he's a good guy. Um, you know, the, the GOP ad last week said he's inspirational. Um, mm -hmm. I talked to Herschel Walker uh, yesterday and he, he pretty much um, volunteered the fact, I'm trying to find the quote super fast, that he was, um, uh, he was a phenomenal figure. Um, you know, he's absolutely incredible, Walker said of Herschel Warnock. Sorry, of Walker said of Raphael Warnock, but you know, I'm incredible too. So, you know, there's not this, he's the enemy, he's, the, he's this ominous music sort of ad stuff. It's that he's a, he's a good guy, but he's following bad policies is the GOP narrative right now. Alan, I got to get to a break, but you get one last word before we go. Well, I, I think what we're going to uh, the, the question here in Georgia and a number of these uh, key Senate and governor's races around the country is going to be for one of the questions for me is whether Republicans are going to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, which is something that we've seen happen before. Um, we've seen over the past decade that in a number of Senate races, especially um, that Republicans have nominated candidates who were so controversial or extreme that they ended up losing races that were very winnable. Uh, it remains to be seen if Herschel Walker is going to be that kind of candidate. Uh, but we know that Raphael Warnock and the Democrats are going to spend a lot of money trying to make that happen. But we're seeing this around the country, for example, in the Pennsylvania governor's race, the Republicans nominated a very, very right-wing uh, Trumpist uh, election denier uh, and I think that's putting their chances at great risk. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that person can win an election in the state of Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz, if he wins the nomination, again, he has a lot of baggage. We'll see what happens. But Republicans may end up leaving seats on the table that they could have won. I, I know we could talk about this for the rest of the show, but I really want to talk for a few minutes about guns as a result of last night. So uh, thank you all for uh, a, a conversation. We begin the conversation about Walker and Warnock. There will be a lot more to come as the campaign unfolds. Let's take our final break and come right back.
Tia Mitchell, I sent out a note to all of you on the panel last night saying uh, this Texas uh, shooting, this mass shooting, the deaths of these children was so troubling. It was, I was, it just seemed to loom over everything we thought we were going to be paying attention to uh, last night as election returns came in. You re responded. You said, I know I'm having a hard time focusing on it. And Greg, before the show, you said that to all of us as, as well. Tia, um, there is a political component to all this, though. We saw how quickly Democrats jumped on choice as an issue after the, the leak of the uh, 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 ruling, the opinion that would overturn Roe. Will they do the same thing on guns? And are as guns as good an issue to take on it as abortion in many ways? So I do think there's already, you know, some movement for Democrats to move on guns in Congress, but it's likely to go nowhere because you still have the filibuster in the Senate and you still have Republicans who know that they can wait out the outrage, wait till the latest mass shooting is no longer in the headlines and then allow it to fizzle with doing nothing. And we've seen it time and time again. Um, I don't think that guns um, have, Abortion is hard to get done, too, but guns are even harder to legislate because um, it's it pulls guns have such nuance into how you regulate them that it's hard to come up with agreement. It's not as black and white as should women have the right to have an abortion or not. Right. But, Andrew, what about as a campaign issue in the general that, you know, this is definitely going to come up and, and, and be a campaign issue. I mean, you know, we haven't talked about the 7th District, but, you know, this is, uh, you know, losing this battle course is not going to ignore this as an issue. It's something that's near and dear to her heart. As a policy issue, right, this should be the type of moment where we sit and we rethink our gun policy, but unfortunately, we've been there before. So it was 10 years ago where we saw even more little kids die in a classroom, and that didn't get us to a point where we were actually going to move on gun control legislation. So I think a lot of people are just heartbroken because they see more children dying, and the fear is nothing is going to happen or change as a result of it. And one of the ways that we can see that happening is that we have seen public officials already come out and say things that don't make a whole lot of sense to other people. So you have Kim Paxton, who won his, his runoff uh, for attorney general of Texas last night, um, and Ted Cruz saying stuff like, well, we need to put more guns in schools, right? Perhaps teachers mm -hmm. should be carrying guns. Nobody wants their second grade teacher to like be walking around in a holster um, in class. What are we doing? So until that rhetoric changes on the other side, I think we're at an impasse, sadly. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Greg, uh, we should have pointed out, and I apologize, I'm glad Andra mentioned it, Lucy McBeth did win very handily over Carolyn Bordeaux, forced together in one district by the Republican redrawing of the lines. And probably it was because Lucy McBath, one of the reasons, so well known on such a, a big issue, having lost her son in a gun tragedy. Yeah, and she approached this race as the front runner from the get go, um, and and had a lot of outside support and also a lot of statewide support. And look, you know that's not her only issue. She talks about expanding Medicaid, um, voting rights, other other issues near and dear um, to, uh, to, uh, to to Democratic candidates. But certainly, this was 
first and foremost. And look, I mean, what Democrats um, will always point to is polls, including from the Atlanta Journal Constitution, that show a broad base of the Georgia electorate supports new controls, new restrictions um, on guns. And what Republicans are going to do, um, you know, don't expect Governor Kemp to, to lean back on this. He's going to lean into this. He's going to say that his his signing of, of what he calls constitutional carry, but uh, basically rolling back um, uh, gun permitting rules, um, you know, was A, a campaign promise, and B, keeping Georgia on par with other states, including some Democratic-led states that also have similar rules. So he's going to sort of frame that as a common sense. You know, we don't need more government regulations. Um, But this is going to continue to be um, a major dividing line between the parties. And another example of how Democrats have so shifted. I've talked about this before, but not that long ago, Democrats ran as NRA Democrats. And now they're forcefully advocating for more gun restrictions. Alan, before the show, I looked at Gallup's history on asking questions about guns. In 1990, when they said, do we need tougher laws controlling gun purchases, 78% said yes. In October 2021, 52% said yes. Uh, It's interesting the way things have changed. Well, I think what that primarily reflects is growing partisan polarization on that issue, um, where now... Uh, what we have is a situation where uh, Democratic voters are overwhelmingly support stricter gun control laws. Republican voters, by and large, uh, oppose uh, such laws, with some exceptions. Um, so I do think it's an issue that you're going to see Democrats use, again, to try to energize their base uh, and to appeal to swing voters, just as mm-hmm. the issue of abortion will be used by Democrats. Um, I think Republicans are going to stick to their positions on this issue. I don't think you're going to see any movement. Uh, on that. Uh, and I don't think you will see any movement on guns or on abortion uh, unless and until we see that the issue drives the outcomes uh, of elections and gives you know, Democrats and those supporting abortion rights and gun, greater uh, gun restrict, restrictions on guns uh, the advantage uh, and, and actually shaping, shaping the outcomes of elections. And that, that uh, you know, remains to be seen. Mm. Tia, we got Tia, we got to give you just a real quick comment here. We're almost out of time. Yeah, I just wanted to point out this is yesterday a reporter for CNN asked Herschel Walker about whether he would support new gun laws, and this is the quote: "What I like to do is see it in everything and stuff." You know, a nonsensical quote, and it just shows that you know Herschel mm-hmm. Walker is going to be asked to weigh in on things like that, and he's got to have an answer. Tia, thank you for a final comment for today's show. Tia Mitchell, Andre Gillespie, Alan Abramowitz, Greg Bluestein, thank you for a really wonderful conversation on this morning after uh, the Georgia primary elections. We're completely out of time. We're back again with a live show at 2 o'clock this afternoon, so join us, please, uh, for that program. Uh, Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. See you this afternoon. Bye, everybody.